and welcome to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast. My name is Jesse, and I'll be your host. So on today's episode, we're going to head over to the Croker Queen pageant to go cheer on our best friend while she tries to win this beauty pageant. We're also going to head over to the Shivers department store uh, to go look at some cool deals. Um, and then also, I guess we're going to run away from like a crazed uh, killer with a hook uh, in a slicker. But anyway, besides all of that, though, today we're going to be covering... The one, the only, 1997's I Know What You Did Last Summer. Now, this movie in particular, I mean, you know, it kind of goes without saying, it's very much a kind of remnant of the late 90s teen horror boom, if you will, uh, that kind of happened because of Scream, really. Although, I will say that this was just one way that Kevin Williamson was able to, you know, also have his foothold in there. Uh, Some people have said that, oh, like, he had done something with I Know What You Did Last Summer before Scream happened. But that's not actually the case. But uh, he actually had done Killing Mrs. Tingle. He had written that before Scream. But then that got shelved pretty much. And then once he wrote Scream and that kind of became a sleeper hit, Killing Mrs. Tingle then turned into Teaching Mrs. Tingle. Uh, But then also this movie, you know, fell into his lap as well. But I think they were already kind of like, uh, the production company was already wanting to make this movie. The studio already wanted to make it. So... It just so happened that Kevin Williamson was the the right guy for the job, I guess. But um, anyway, though, my history with this is that I definitely probably saw it when I was, I don't know, like, probably a kid or a preteen, if you will. Um, I kind of remember the book a little bit. And we'll talk about that as well. But, like, I remember the book being a thing. and But I remember the movie before I remember the book, though. But, of course, like, you know, I, I definitely watched it. Why wouldn't I? You know? Uh, and I, I will say that even for whatever, you know, flaws there are in this, and there there are a couple, but, like, you know, overall, I do tend to like this movie. I think I literally gave it, like, a four or a four and a half on Letterboxd. Because, I don't know, if you want, like, a fun kind of melodrama like you know teen horror movie like it's it's a good time you know and, and then of course like the cast in it, it's really good and yeah just everything in it is just like really over the top in a way but like in the best way to me i feel like as we normally do on the show we're going to head into learning about some figures of the movie learning about the production history all that kind of fun stuff and then we'll also move into a breakdown of the plot and all that but without further ado let's get on to those figures so I Know What You Did Last Summer was released October 17th, 1997, and was directed by Jim Gillespie, written by Kevin Williamson, and produced by Neil H. Moritz, Eric Feig, and Stokely Chaffin. We're looking at an estimated budget of $17 million and a gross U.S. and Canada box office of $72,586,134, and then a gross worldwide box office of $125,586,134. We're looking at a Rotten Tomatoes score of 40 on the tomato meter and a 41% audience score. We're looking at an IMDb score of 5.8 out of 10 and a letterboxed score of 2.9 out of 5. For our cast of characters, we have Jennifer Love Hewitt as Julie James, Sarah Michelle Geller as Helen Shivers, Ryan Phillippe as Barry Cox, Freddie Prince Jr. as Ray Bronson, Bridget Wilson as Elsa Shivers, Anne Heche as Melissa Missy Egan, Muse Watson as Ben Willis slash The Fisherman, Johnny Galecki as Matt Nurick, and then Stuart Greer as Officer. 
Some critical response quotes about I Know What You Did Last Summer are as follows. We have James Crute from stuff.co.nz in New Zealand, who states, This really does feel like it's missing something, perhaps the result of being rushed out after the renewed interest in horror post-Scream. We then have Rosalind Bentley from the Minneapolis Star Tribune, who states, Even though the murders are gruesome, the film is not scary, nor is it clever. We've seen this many times before, but with different titles and different stars. And then we also have the Irish Statheim staff, who also states, Essentially, there's too much wandering around in search of the truth, and not enough he's behind you stuff to keep the plot engine ticking. And the ending is a throwaway letdown. Of a plot summary about I Know What You Did Last Summer, I wanted to just go over uh, some basic production history of the movie and just, you know, talk a little bit about that. Now, as I stated earlier, uh, this is based off of a book from 1973 by Lois Duncan, and then... Um, it's really more of like kind of a young adult book, I guess, really. Uh, so I'm going to go into a little bit about what that plot summary is, and then we'll get into how the actual the movie came to be. So the plot summary of I Know What You Did Last Summer, the book, is high school senior Julie James receives a note in the mail that reads, I Know What You Did Last Summer. The previous summer, Julie, her then-boyfriend Ray Bronson, Ray's best friend Barry Cox, and Barry's girlfriend and Julie's best friend Helen Rivers were driving home after partying in the mountains. They accidentally run over and kill a young bicycling boy named David Gregg. After Ray anonymously calls an ambulance for David, the four make a pact never to tell anyone about their involvement in the incident. Uh, Julie and Ray subsequently drift apart from one another, and Ray moves to California for work. Out of guilt, Julie anonymously sends yellow flowers to uh, David's funeral, pretty much. After receiving the note, Julie visits Helen at her apartment, and Barry is invited over, and he reassures the girls that it is just a prank and that anyone who knew about their involvement would go to the police instead of leaving notes. Ray returns home after a year away in California and tries to get back together with Julie. However, she is not interested, and he learns that she is dating Bud, who recently served in the military. And so the next day, Helen is tanning at her apartment complex when she meets Collingsworth, Collie Wilson, who moved into one of their apartments the day before. And after this ex encounter, Helen finds a magazine cutout of a boy riding a bicycle taped to her door. And Ray also receives a newspaper clipping in the mail about David Gregg that same day. So on Memorial Day, Barry gets a call from somebody offering to sell a picture the caller says shows a car hitting David's bicycle. They agree to meet on the athletic field, and when Barry gets there, he is shot in the stomach by an unknown person. The bullet becomes lodged in his spine and threatens to paralyze him. Julie and Ray meet to discuss the shooting and decide to visit the house of David's parents to see if they could have been involved. So at the Greggs, Ray and Julie use the excuse of car trouble, and Megan, uh, David's sister, lets them in. So Ray goes into the hallway and pretends to make a call while Julie talks to Megan, and she tells Julie that their mother had had a nervous breakdown following David's death and was sent to a hospital in Lon Lunas, um, and that their father moved there to be close to her. And so when Ray and Julie leave, Julie tells Ray what she found out. So Ray sneaks into the hospital to visit Barry, and Barry lies about the shooting and tells him that someone was actually trying to rob him, and Ray passes this information along to Helen. So when Barry finds out that he will be able to walk, he 
calls Helen because he wants to confess that the caller was the person who shot him and that she's in danger. So Helen's out and she misses the call and she is surprised to see Kali uh, when she returns to her apartment. Kali says that he is David's older brother and that he shot Barry as revenge for his involvement in the accident. So he explains that he found out who had run him down by questioning the saleswoman to whom Julie had uh, brought the yellow roses to. Um, And he determined Helen was involved in a hit and run when Julie went to Helen's apartment after Julie received the note. So Helen realizes that Kali plans to kill her and she locks herself in a bathroom. So after Kali tries to take down the door off its hinges, she breaks the bathroom window and manages to escape. And so that evening, Julie is preparing for her date with Bud. Uh, However, her mother has an ominous premonition, because apparently she's psychic, and asks Julie to stay home, to which she agrees. And so when Bud arrives, um, he convinces her to walk back um, with him to his car so that they can have a talk. And at his car, Bud tells her that his younger brother David had given him the name Bud because he could not pronounce Collingsworth. And uh, so he reveals that he knows Julie was involved in the hit and run and tries to strangle her. Uh, So then Ray, who receives a call from Barry warning that they're in danger, appears and he beats Collingsworth unconscious with a flashlight. And so the police arrive after being sent by Helen to Julie's house. And so Julie and Ray agree that it's time to confess what they did last summer. And so, actually, funny enough, like, so that's the plot summary of the book. And so the book itself uh, was published in October of 1973. And Duncan uh, had gotten the idea from the book uh, while she was making dinner. uh, And her daughter, Carrie, was having a conversation with a friend in the kitchen. So her daughter was talking uh, to her friend about a boy that interested her and that her friend was considering uh, what to wear on their upcoming date. And so the two uh, eventually found out that they were talking about the same boy. And so Lois Duncan uh, began to wonder what would happen if the boy had deliberately implanted himself in the lives of two girls he knew were friends. Uh, which, of course, happens in this book. And if he built them uh, up a different personality to present to each one of them. So uh, Duncan later read a story about a hit and run in the uh, newspaper, which she then incorporated into the novel as well. So there's that. So that's the basic idea of how the the, sh- the book came to be. And it's, you know, kind of one of those, like, young adult, like, middle school novels that you can read or whatever. Um, but... Uh, The movie, actually, so it was a screenplay written by Kevin Williamson um, several years beforehand. Uh, But again, he had done uh, Killing Mrs. Tingle. He wrote that. That got shelved. Uh, But I really do think that this movie was more so um, they wanted to rush in production because, you know, Scream was hot by this point. And they were like, oh, fuck, yeah, we're going to just ride the train pretty much. And so this was rushed into production by Columbia Pictures. One of the producers, Eric Feig, he pitched the idea of a screen adaptation to Mandalay Entertainment, uh, who ended up making the movie, and subsequently appointed Williamson to just um, retool the core elements of this novel. So it's more like an 80s slasher movie, because really the novel seemed more like kind of a uh, thriller mystery kind of thing going on. And so... Inspired by his father, who had been a commercial fisherman, Williamson changed the setting to a small fishing village and then also made the villain a hook-wielding, like, uh, fisherman. And so, of course, this is a reference to urban legend of the hook, uh, which obviously in the beginning of the movie, they they kind of tell this uh, 
urban legend to each other. We'll get into urban legend in a minute. But anyway, according to Williamson, he wrote that scene as a way of indicating what was to come. So basically, all I was doing was that I was setting the framework to say, all right, audience, that's that legend. Now here's a new one. Yeah. And I, if anything, like, I think I know what you did last summer was really trying to be more like a straight up slasher movie because Scream is also a slasher, but it's very self-aware and it's, it's kind of a satire really. Whereas this, I don't think is a satire. Yeah. It's a little melodramatic, but I mean, overall, I think it is a, a slasher movie. So Jim Gillespie commented in 2008, he said, the joy of this film for me as a filmmaker was taking in the elements that we have seen before and saying to the audience that here's something you've seen before, knowing what they're um, saying, uh, we've seen this before and still getting them to jump. And that he also claimed that he felt Williamson's screenplay did not resemble a um, slasher horror movie. It was rather it's a really good story with a morality tale put in it. So, yeah. And then what I will say, so I mean, uh, with the director of the film. So if you listen to my Urban Legend episode uh, from a couple moons ago, um, <laughs> it was not great audio. But uh, anyway, whatever. But I, uh, I talk a little bit about it in there. But this movie in particular, so this story, this script, ended up getting into the hands of a gentleman by the name of Jamie Blanks, actually, who was the guy who directed Urban Legend, he uh, got a hold of the script. He actually really loved it. And he was like, oh, my God, I really want this. But I'm like, in Australia, what should I do to try to set myself apart? Uh, so he literally took, he got some film from a job he was working, and he was able to just, like, use that to be able to you go out and shoot a concept trailer pretty much. So like literally taking parts of the script and like bringing it to life. Um, and all of this also all being done like literally in the middle of Australia. But anyway, so yeah, he did this though to set himself apart and he sent this concept trailer uh, to a friend of his, his literary agent named Simon in, in LA and literary agent loved it. They then showed, um, they ended up showing it to Neil Moritz, who was the guy who produced this movie, but would also subsequently go and do urban legend. And even Neil Moritz was like, Oh my God, like this is a really good trailer. Like he even thought like, you know, Oh, like, cause at this point they had already tired Jim Gillespie, but they were even like, Oh my God, did we make the wrong choice? Cause like this guy was really good. Like Jamie Blanks was really good. Um, cause he was such a horror fan. He had done like a horror short, uh, for his thesis project and all this. Um, and he was just trying to get work as a director, but, um, so much so that they loved his concept trailer so much that I, I would definitely say that the trailer to I Know What You Did Last Summer takes some liberties. I think they kind of use some of the stuff uh, from Jamie's trailer when you really watch it. I, I do think they did it a little bit, but, you know, it's Hollywood. There's that, but then also they literally were like, hey we really loved your trailer. We already actually hired a guy for this, but pretty much the next movie that we're going to make like this, like a horror movie, uh, you pretty much have the job, which is literally how Jamie Blanks got his job for urban legend, which is really cool. But yeah. So, I mean, but then they ended up finding Jim Gillespie though. And, uh, they really wanted to just find actors who were like beautiful, but likable. You know what I mean? Um, so like, for example, they, really did want to get like for example like Melissa Joan Hart um they did actually offer her the role but she turned it down because she felt like it would be a ripoff of Scream 
kind of. But uh, instead, they were able to get Jennifer Love Hewitt, who at the time had been in Party of Five, House Arrest, you know, Kids Incorporated, all this. But this was kind of a, a big break for her, really, which was like really cool for her. So for the role of Barry, who would end up being in... Um, played by Ryan Philippi, they envisioned a guy to be like a quarterback, like six foot two, you know, imposing dude. And so for having someone like Ryan Philippi, who, you know, uh, they weren't his first choice, really. But I think, you know, it, it didn't it didn't hurt that he was already kind of working anyway. You know, and also Jim Gillespie, he felt like, but I don't think they were really sold on Freddie Prince Jr. I think it was really Jim Gillespie who said like, hey, I would love to get this guy. So I don't, I don't think the studio was sold on him. But anyway, of course, the the one and only, I mean, for Helen Shivers, like Sarah Michelle Gellar, who at this point was just starting on Buffy, really. Um, so like, literally, I think it was like beginning of, I don't know, I haven't watched Buffy like that. But like, I think it was beginning of season two or something like that. Like, it was early, where people would know her for that. But like, literally, like it was early on. And they wanted somebody who, you know, had a warmth to her, but also could be a bitch, you know, which I think, I think Sarah Michelle Gellar toes that line really well. I think she's just very strong, which is cool. Um, and for the role of Missy, uh, Gillespie sought out an actress with significant stage presence. And so that's how we uh, came across Anne Heche, who at this point... Well, she hadn't really hit hit right then. Um, she would then go on to be in Psycho 98 and like, what is it, Volcano, I think, or something like that. She has now since passed away, unfortunately. But, you know, she also lived, I think, a hard life. Her mom is like a anti-LGBT person. And like her mom, I think like um, her father, I think, came out as like a gay person at some point and like obviously their parents broke up and so her mom like literally went into the other direction and i don't know she seemed to have had a uh, a bit of a, a tough go at it um so rest in peace Anne Heche. but yeah so uh, the casting of this movie i mean again there's like all of that going on but i think this is a nice core group of people really in the movie so the shooting of this movie it started um March 31st of 1997. It took over a 10 week period uh, through the early, the late spring, early summer of 1997. Um, a lot of this took place at night. Um, and so some of it took place, I mean, so some of this, it was kind of a dual location. So some of it was done in California. So the beginnings, um, of the movie that's in California for sure. So like where they're driving and stuff like that, that is literally all there pretty much. Uh, but then there are some other scenes that are actually in North Carolina where really this was supposed to be set pretty much. Cause that is where Kevin Williamson is from. Um, so for example, like I would say probably like where the beauty pageant is, um, the old yacht basin, the Southport um, fish company. So a lot of those town little scenes probably where the um, the Shivers department store was was actually in Southport, um, North Carolina. So like a lot of them did actually go there. So yeah, kind of fun and and it's cool that they could do that. So yeah, they did kind of have this like uh, it was this kind of dual thing going on really. But yeah, so it was kind of there and and I also in a funny way too. I don't know how close because I'm not from the Carolinas. So I don't know. I, I'm interested to see like how. Because Kevin Williamson's from there, like, 
how far off of this is from where like Dawson's Creek was, I guess. Uh, I'm not looking it up right now. Somebody can tell me if you want. Because if you don't already know, uh, Dawson's Creek was supposed to be set in New England, like Massachusetts or something like that. But it's very clearly North Carolina. Um, I think it is North Carolina, actually. But anyway, so, all right, the movie's made, all that kind of stuff. Ooh, we, we can also talk about this, too. Ooh, so I think of a fun one, too, is... Uh, <laughs> Well, we'll get into it, but so post-production of this movie, so Jim Gillespie chose to virtually film uh, no on-screen blood as he didn't want this to be an overly gratuitous, like, violent film or anything. So, like, you know, even when they uh, kill the sister Elsa, like, again, it's very much like a lot of this is just like, um, if anything, they just didn't want a whole lot of blood in it, you know? And also, but I will say, though, is that that happened and then when they did some test screenings of the movie uh people were like what is going on why is there no blood in this so they did decide to put a death in a little bit earlier which is why they had the scene with max played by johnny galecki um they put it in there to do that so that character actually was not going to be killed initially uh but they were like now nah, we gotta add a death in there so let's kill this guy but yeah and then also a little fun thing too is that uh, the original ending of the movie uh, featured a sequence in which julie receives an email in reading i know what you did or i still know um and that was scrapped for a more dramatic ending than what we get in the film um and actually that was literally done in the soundstage right next to where she was doing party five at which is kind of fun <laughs> but anyway so yeah this movie kind comes out i think it really does hit big um and it kind of if anything it's it's that other movie other than scream that i think really did very well enough where they did make a second one which is i still know what you did last summer with our girl jennifer love hewitt but also brandy jack black and those fucking dreads god you know all these different people in it so uh jeffrey combs is there like you know whatever and then also i'll always know what you did last summer is a part of there and i don't want to watch that movie at all um so i'm probably not going to because apparently it's really bad it's like direct video and not good uh, i will say too also i i love that I'd, this is not a boy meets world rewatch podcast or anything but i definitely grew up with boy meets world for sure and so what i love too is that in this uh in this vein they have an episode called and then there was sean which is in the fifth season where uh it's pretty much a uh slasher kind of parody if you will because at the time that that movie or this movie came out right after it uh is when they made this episode for of boy meets world which was on abc and so it just that is the literally the perfect episode for boy meets world to be honest with you um it's so good and amazing uh, and the reason it works is because I will argue this and I can't wait till pod meets world talks about it in 40 years from now. But anyway, I think that is like a really good episode of that show. And it's, it's deemed as like one of the best. And the reason it is, is because it is such a perfect amalgamation of, and parody of slasher films at that time. Uh, it's not a Halloween episode, uh, for people who don't already know, I think some people think it is, but it actually was really literally released in like January or February or something uh, when it first came out, but they use it as a Halloween episode. But anyway, but I will say that here and now I think it works so well 
because they included Jennifer Love Hewitt in it. And it just so happened that she was actually dating Will Friedle at the time, who was Eric Matthews. So he probably called in a favor to be like, hey, will you be on this? So it just so happened your girlfriend was in like a big horror movie. Because the only other thing that could have made it work is if it was Nev Campbell. I mean, really, like, honestly. But I don't know if Nev Campbell would have really done that, to be honest. So, whatever. But uh, it, it works so well. Because she, like, is also in on the joke. And I think she's having fun with it. Like, she's Jennifer Love Pfefferman in the show. Like, she screams. And, like, Angela, uh, you know, is also supposed to be the scream queen. And she, like... <laughs> so, like, they have, like, a little, like... So she screams. And then, like, Angela screams. And she's just like... She's like, I, I didn't know. She's like, yes, girl, I'm the scream around here it's so good if you haven't already watched that episode please do so it's so goddamn good but again it's it but it, that is also kind of where we get like you know the the parody of it all and and poking fun at it uh, obviously scary movie does that again because this movie i also think has a level of melodrama to it because it's just so like over the top a little bit and just my gay man you know so like it, it, you know for me it's like oh god I don't know it, there is that level of there's not camp but it's just like this level of melodrama I think also Lois Duncan was not a fan of this movie at all she fucking hated it I mean I kind of uh, maybe can understand because it was literally something where she didn't want this obviously I think also she was just going through some things at the time as well you know uh, her daughter had actually been uh, murdered and so she actually wrote a book on that funny enough but you know it, it's just like these things where it is like I think this movie is so a fun little teen horror movie that is a perfect watch for like 4th of July because it takes place around the 4th of July funny enough because it's supposed to have the book is around Memorial Day but the this is obviously 4th of July and all that, but you know, I, I just think it's such a fun little movie and, but we talked all about this though. So we talked about the production history, some of like the little bit of a legacy it has or whatever you want to call it. But without further ado though, let's move on to a plot summary, plot breakdown of, I know what you did last summer. So we begin our movie as we're like uh, coming in on this like cliffside over the water. We have our title card of I Know What You Did Last Summer, all of our casting in it, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? And we have this cover of what is that song? Summer Breeze, I believe. Uh, it's a fun little, you know, cover that they have. But anyway, we meet this uh, young man who is like uh, sitting on the cliffside drinking and he has like this like little necklace that he's like twirling or whatever. Anyway, and it's like all weird. He's all weird and pensive and shit like that. And you're just like, oh, I wonder who this guy is. But anyway, so uh, we then go into fireworks because it is July 4th of 1996 and we are in Southport, North Carolina. So Julie James, played by Jennifer Love Hewitt, and her friends Ray Bronson, played by Freddie Prince Jr., Helen Shivers, uh, played by Sarah Michelle Geller, and Barry Cox, played by Ryan Philippe, they are over at 
that's their little town. Um, and so we find out that uh, Helen is in the Miss Croker Queen pageant where she ends up winning um, because she is going to be a serious actress when they are. Um, she's going to move to New York, be a serious actress uh, and all that. And so we are to assume that these people have just graduated from high school um, and that's what they're doing. Um, so they're like being young and, you know, teenagers and shit like that. They end up going to this little party after uh, Helen wins. And so they also run into this guy, Max, played by John Galecki, Johnny Galecki, uh, who had been on Roseanne at this point. So anyway, uh, he's kind of like an outsider of this group. So these four are kind of like friends with each other, obviously. Although I guess you could say that Ray uh, is kind of the the interloper of the group, uh, kind of, uh, because uh, the other three people, Barry, Helen, and Julie, they're all like rich and well off, whereas Ray is not, I don't think, but he's still a part of the group or whatever. Anyway, so fucking Max uh, gets into a fight with Barry because Barry's just a dick. And so, like, uh, they get into a fight, they kind of break it up or whatever. Um, but then they decide, all right, we're going to like go and drive um, over to the beach, Dawson's Beach. This is before Dawson's Creek, everybody. So <laughs> he had to put that in there anyway so they drive over to the beach so they drive over in barry's car which is like this new car that they have uh and so they drive over and they're on the beach and they're telling uh the story about uh it is actually the hook the the urban legend of that they can't seem to get the story correct pretty much uh because they all have different ways of telling it which kind of in itself is the whole idea of urban legends that they're passed down and details change. But you see that like, um, these are two respective couples. So Barry and Helen are together and then Ray and Julie are together. So, <laughs> Helen and Barry, they are uh, <laughs> pretty much having sex on the beach. And then Julie and uh, Ray end up actually doing it on the beach as well. I don't know about you, but I don't want to have no beach sex. That's just my opinion, but whatever. Anyway, so Barry's loaded out of his ass, right? And so he's drunk as shit, so he can't drive. So what ends up happening is that Ray ends up uh, being the one to drive. So while driving along um, the coastal byway, uh, they hit a pedestrian, okay? And that happens. Um, so he just is in the middle of the road uh, because this whole thing is like they're leaving and uh, Barry's being a dick and like, you know... <laughs> standing up in his car out of the sunroof drinking uh he drops his his uh alcohol and again this whole thing happens with them hitting this guy we don't know who this guy is really quite yet but anyway um they're like freaking the fuck out because they're like oh my god did we hear a deer but then they end up going and trying to investigate what exactly happened and then they find out that it's like a literal person uh the way they find out it's a person is because there is a boot that is like on the side of the road which is made fun of in scary movie when they say we hit a boot shannon elizabeth wonderful lovely but anyway so uh, Max from earlier, uh, who's a friend of Julie's, I guess, uh, passes by them on the road, um, being like, oh, hey, do you have car trouble? And then they have to make up something where they pretty much say, like, oh, no, Barry's like, you know, just, uh, he's throwing up. He got really drunk. You know, we want to try and keep the vomit out of the car. So, like, you know, that's what we're doing. Anyway, so, uh, <laughs> Max is uh, reassured by Julie. They're like, oh, it's fine. It's all good. And he leaves. Um, so then they decide, like, you know, because Julie is in the mindset of, like, okay, well, I we have to do something. We have to go to the police. And they decide to not do that uh, because they have all these ideas of, like, oh, well, you know, 
we're going to get fucked no matter what. Like, you know, we, we're all going down if we go anything about this. So we need to just like cover it up. So that's what they decided to do. So they drive over um, and they decide they're going to just take this guy and dump him into the water. Um, so that's fun. Um, but the pedestrian, he wakes up and he attacks Helen. He actually takes her tiara. So he falls in the water and Barry uh, ends up going after he dives under the water to get his uh, his girlfriend's crown for her. But we find out that this guy is technically still alive. But then we are to assume that he dies by literally being drowned pretty much um and so this whole scene happens and then uh they decide to swear to never discuss what has happened uh barry is just really extra and being fucking a dick to everybody (laughs) but they all decide like oh hey like we're not going to say anything about this okay fine so we get start right out of the gate right so then a year later in 1997 julie is coming home from college in boston she's coming home from the summer um i have no idea how her friend her the the, like literal one person of color in this movie like literally because they she goes to school in boston i think and so her friend like literally drives her back home and i don't know about you i live on the east coast i've been to boston and fucking boston to north carolina they better have some good tunes bitch i don't know if you that's hours that's so many hours but anyway anyway so julie comes back home we are we we find out that uh her father has passed away and the mom is just pretty much raising her on her own but we see that julie is just like really going through it she doesn't look good you know like like her hair's kind of greasy and like she's like dark circles under her eyes like she's made to look like a piece of shit pretty much she comes home and her mom's like are you on drugs she's like no mom i'm not on drugs like no you don't have to worry about that anyway so um but the friends have all kind of gone their separate ways so julie for example receives a letter uh that is addressed that says i know what you did last summer but yeah so like her and well her and barry don't talk obviously because he was a complete dick to her her and ray ended up kind of going our their separate ways and then her and helen also too because again helen is becoming a you know famous actress in in you know in new york so julie tracks down helen who at this point is actually working at her family store shivers which is run by her uh bitchy older sister elsa played by bridget wilson but yeah so julie tracks down helen and they take the note to barry which again is all there and so he suspects max uh going on so you know oh it must have been that which this is where we find out this is where we find out that ray and julie pretty much broke up uh, and all that kind of stuff we also find out that apparently the guy that they hit was a na- guy by the name of david egan that's what we find out because uh julie had seen something in the paper a couple weeks afterward uh talking about how this person was found um washed ashore or something like that so they go uh, to the docks and they confront Max um, and Barry is crazy and he threatens him with a hook because uh, he also is like a fisherman, I guess. But this is where we also find out that Julie sees Ray, who now works as a fisherman. So they have their little kind of meet up again. But uh, again, it's just not going to happen with them. I'm just kind of a thing through, thing through the movie, really. So then anyway, we then see that after this whole confrontation with Barry and Max, uh, Max is later then killed by a guy in a rain slicker who is wielding a hook. So pretty much it's like the whole setup of like, uh, you see this hook and then it goes away 
And then, like, Max is doing his job where he's, like, putting crabs or something into, like, a steamer or whatever the hell. And he gets killed by, like, uh, the hook going uh, under his chin pretty much. And he gets killed that way. And as I stated earlier, this was actually added in a little bit later. So it's probably a reshoot, really, where they wanted to add a kill scene earlier. Um, because really, when you think about it, if you don't put this in there... I mean, goddamn, like, nobody died. If you didn't have the scene in here, like, nobody would have died for, like, the first fucking... Oh, my God. It would have been at least, like, a half hour. Like, at least a little bit more, probably, before anyone even died. Because the only people who really die in this movie are, um... Well, yeah, Barry dies, and then, you know, um, Helen dies. Oh, we'll get to it. But anyway, no, but, like, yeah. And, and so those are the two people, and then whatever. But, like, yeah, it would take it for fucking ever, dude, when you really think about it like that. Sorry to get off on that tangent. But anyway. But anyway, so back to... Back to, uh... Later that night, though, after Max is killed, um, Barry goes to a kickboxing gym or whatever the fuck it is. I don't know. He goes there and he is he is there and he's working out and he discovers a picture of his car in a gym locker in his gym locker with the words I know on it. Um, this is also, I think, a lot of gays awakening of this movie because this movie is also it's not too super duper gay on the surface but i mean just having ryan Phillippe in it and fucking like it's written by a gay guy obviously um even having anne haitian there when she was like literally dating ellen around this time so, anyway bitch could you imagine if portia de rossi was in this movie oh my god it would have been amazing but anyway so uh hi sydney um so funny but anyway so uh so he finds this picture, whatever. This is also parodied in um <laughs> Scary Movie, if you've ever seen it, where uh the guy who plays pretty much the dude, I don't remember his fucking name, but like the guy who is like this character or whatever, it's a picture of his micro penis, if you've ever seen that. Oh my god, that movie. Anyway, but uh he pretty much is what ends up happening is he finds out that so what happens is he has this whole thing where um, he sees that his car is being stolen pretty much, uh, but he's pretty much ambushed by this same assailant in the slicker with the hook driving his car because they have a little kind of cat and mouse thing going on. Um, and he ends up getting pretty much hit with his car, but he doesn't get killed at first, which I think is really interesting because it, it is really interesting that like they had this where it really is kind of toying with that cat and mouse type of game you know what i mean we end up seeing that you know uh they go to the hospital i think it's julie and ray and helen all end up there and they're talking to each other but this is also so we have that scene we also have the scene where like i think it's ray and julie like ray's trying to see if he can get back with julie or like try to mend their relationship but of course julie's all like you know there's no us anymore and just it's her jennifer love hewitt being jennifer love hewitt but anyway so in the meantime though during all of this we see that julie is uh using uh the worldwide net the internet uh <laughs> in 1997 uh to research uh newspaper articles uh that she's somehow able to get off of this website and again they find out that it's david egan is who they are uh saying like hey here's who this is so they decide 
to go and find the Egan family and want to find out a little bit more. Now, in the book, this is actually not Helen and Julie doing this. This is uh, Julie and I think Ray actually doing this or somebody. Oh, yes, I think it is Ray. But anyway, so they do it together. Anyway, so Helen and Julie, they decide to go trek out to the middle of fucking nowhere. And they meet with David's sister, Missy, played by Anne Heche, uh, at her home, the home. And we find out... So this is a whole thing because she just looks weird as shit, uh, Missy does. And so she just looks really weird. Um, she just looks kind of off-putting. And, you know, she lives in this house pretty much all by herself. And, and um, but she's not hurting anybody, really. Um, and she's at least nice to these, these girls who come to the, her house. But pretty much we find, and then, of course, like, they, they make up this thing of car trouble. Um, they say, oh, can we use your phone? Blah, blah, blah. Um and they, they give themselves, uh, I think it's funny because they're talking about, very much in Kevin Williamson speak, but like, uh, they're talking about how, uh, well, do we have a plan? Like, you know, Helen's like, do we have a plan? You know, Angela Lansbury always had a plan. <laughs> And then also they talk about, like, um, when they're walking up to the house, you know, uh, she says something about, like, you know, uh, Jodie Foster did this and she was, like, met with, like, a serial killer. Because they're, like, thinking, oh, my God, like, what the hell, right? But I do like how they're um, literal names for each other uh, because they can't call each other Julie and Helen. They go by, like, these little um, these little pseudonyms. And I love how the one uh, for... <laughs> I like how uh, I think it's Jody is Julie and then Helen is Angela, which is just really funny and silly. I like that. But anyway, so Missy then explains to them because they're trying to like find some stuff out. They're just like, they're like, you seem really familiar. Like, you know, uh, oh, we're from Southport. And then Missy's all like, oh, I went to Southport. Hi. But like, oh, I thought you looked familiar. What year were you? And she's like, oh, I was class of 88 or 89. But like, I had a brother, a younger brother. Um, and he was class 92, but he's dead now. And then pretty much that she tells them like, uh, her family was devastated by David's death when this all happened. And that a friend of, um, his named Billy Blue visited her, um, to pay his respects pretty much. So we find out all this kind of stuff. And, and again, they're just trying to like find out this information. Um, and they're trying to get it. Uh, <laughs> So it's just like really weird, but they're, they're like, all right, well, you know, thank you, Missy. It's been great. Uh, we're just going to go back to our car now and I guess wait for AAA. Um, so they go back in the car uh, and they're like talking to one another and they're just like, you know, Helen and Julie, they're all like, you know, I, I couldn't do it. Like, you know, I just couldn't stay there because like when it came to being in his house with like his sister, finding out that the mom like was pretty much put into like a, a home because like she had a nervous breakdown. Like it's a whole thing. So like, you know, um, and then of course you have the jump scare in it because, uh, Missy is like uh, giving uh, Helen her cigarettes back, and so like of course like it's like this like famous jump scare. Um, she's like, and of course they're all like, um, what did they say? It was like they're like you know, oh yeah, I guess the cars just started right up. She's like, funny that, huh? Because um, again, Missy is supposed to be a red herring, but. Was she really, though? I mean, when you really think about it, but whatever. Okay. Anyway, so uh, Julie uh, drops Helen back off at her house. They have their little uh, moment of like, what happened to us? We used to be each other's friends and we used to be best friends. And, you know, now it just feels like blah, 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 whatever, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, again, they they've just they have drifted apart and this is bringing them back together in not the best of ways. But, uh, you know, things happen, y'all. 
Anyway, so uh, Helen goes back to her house. This is where we see Helen. We see that she pretty much has an absentee father who just watches like baseball. Um, and like she goes, and I love how she uh, she goes to the kitchen. She gets a diet coke. She pours the diet coke, kind of like like wine or something, and she just like drinks it from a glass. And it's just like so vexed. She's so vexed and so like stressed that she needs to get a diet coke. You know what I mean? Ugh. You know, I love it. She's fucking everything. But anyway, so we see that, um, we also see though that Helen, the killer, uh, comes into Helen's house and literally sneaks up into her room where I think he then hides in the, uh, the closet. But they, uh, so she goes up to her room. She's unbeknownst to her. There's a literal killer in the house. And so, of course, like, uh, her and her sister, who are not on good terms, uh, they have this whole conversation. They're having this whole conversation about, like, you know, oh, hey, I need you at the, uh, store by 10. And she's like, oh, I can't go tomorrow. Like, I'm not gonna be able to do that because I'm gonna be in the page. I'm in the parade. I have to go to the pageant tomorrow because, like, you know, I won last year. So, like, I have to be the one to give it up. So I'm gonna be in the parade and then I have to go to the pageant. So I'm not gonna be able to work and then this just shows how much of a bitch elsa is and all that kind of stuff um but yeah anyway so we have their little moment and elsa's just to be seen like you know that she is this bitchy character and all of that she doesn't have much to go off of really um she just like kind of talks down to her sister she thinks it's pathetic that her sister just uh is so um into her looks and so vapid if you will so i'm like okay girl but we're also somehow supposed to believe that bridget wilson is like somehow uh supposed to be ugly or whatever i'm just like okay yeah throw her in a ponytail and a fucking yeah do her do the racially cook of it all you know what i mean and just like throw her in glasses and a ponytail and uh, suddenly she's ugly but okay whatever anyway back to the killer so the killer uh in the middle of the night i guess cuts off um helen's hair and writes soon in lipstick on her mirror which she finds the next morning and she just like takes her fist and like breaks the mirror as you do um anyway so the next morning this is the morning of um, whatever the fuck, I guess, 4th of July or, or something. Yeah, I guess it is 4th of July. But anyway, so uh, like <laughs> the next morning, Julie is on her way out um, and she ends up finding Max's corpse in the trunk of her car wearing Barry's stolen jacket, which got stolen earlier and is covered in crabs. And so she calls the others, you know, of course, like Helen's in her hat because she, she's having a bad hair day. Um, she calls the others. Uh, so Julie, Helen and Barry, um, they all confront Ray about these recent events and all this kind of stuff because, you know, Julie gets uh, Barry and Helen together, tries to show that like Max was in her trunk, but then there's nothing there, um, which is this also is where we get the wonderful. Um, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Huh? Um, which apparently was just like a suggestion by like some person who wants sweepstakes or something. Like they're just like, they should just put that in there, but why not? It it's iconic. But anyway, so but yeah, uh they confront Ray because Ray again has always kind of been the outsider of this group, if you will. And so um they claim to have also received a threatening note though, uh, because they're like because <laughs> they're just like, you know, well, what the hell, Ray? Why are you so like you get a body in a trunk and then I get run over by my fucking car uh, 
Helen gets her hair cut off, and then you get a fucking note? Like, what the hell? Anyway, so then, uh, so they all kind of break off. So again, Ray is kind of like out on his own. We see that um, Barry and Helen, they have to go to the 4th of July parade, because like, obviously she's in it. And so Julie decides to go back and visit uh, Missy. Um, So she's like, hey, remember me? I'm I'm the one who had car trouble and all that, right? And so uh, Missy, though, because she's because like julie goes around to her backyard and like finds that she's there like i don't know killing turkeys or something like literally during their exchange if you will uh, missy reveals that david really actually died of suicide um out of guilt uh for the death of his girlfriend Susie willis um in a car accident and she shows david's suicide note to julie um, which is like, you know, pretty much saying like, I know what you did last summer or I'll always know what you did or whatever. And so what they notice though, is Julie notices that the writing matches the note that she received. Julie realizes that this actually isn't a suicide note as Missy thinks it is, but it's actually a death threat. Um, pretty much saying, I know what you did last summer. And earlier too, we are to kind of get that like, they end up finding finding out that like you know David Egan or whatever like um he was like kind of a star quarterback guy like, he was a popular dude right and he was like somebody who was like a popular guy but then this happened and so that happened like he was found dead or whatever right but then before that right around that same place like he like there was this this uh pretty much like this accident that happened with his girlfriend Susie Willis. Um, so that's when they find out, like, Julie is like, because Julie even tries to say, like, you know, this isn't a suicide note. This is, like, a warning. And then, of course, like, um, Missy doesn't want to hear it. So she's like, get out of my house. Go away. Da, 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 da. So it's like, okay, got it. So meanwhile, uh, while this is all happening and um, Julie is just trying to get herself together at the Croker Cream pageant. So you see, you know, uh, these quote unquote young hopefuls, although the one really just looks like she's like old as hell, but okay. We see that Helen uh, witnesses Barry being murdered in the balcony because she's sitting up on stage and... Um, this lady is singing fame, uh, but she sees that the fisherman comes up from behind and kills Barry pretty much. So she rushes upstairs with a police officer, but finds no sign of the killer or Barry. Cause she is just like going crazy. And like, you know, she is like, yeah, she's fucking scared as shit. So the police officer though, is escorting Helen home. Cause He's just like, all right, all right, girl, like, you know, we got to go home now. <laughs> let's let's take you home. So when he's on the move to like, and Helen's not having any of it, but like the killer lures that guy into an alley by pretending like his car is like out of service or something and the guy is going to go help him. Um, so the killer ends up killing this police officer, uh, which leaves Helen in the back of uh, the police car um so she and obviously she sees that he is coming after her now um so and this is our iconic beginning to this beautiful chase scene it's so good but helen runs to her family's store where her sister elsa is up closing for the night um and so this is where we have the uh the line of like you know uh helen comes up to her and she's like 
banging on the door. She's like, Elsa, Jesus Christ, open the door, hurry, you know? And so Helen, uh, so, so of course she goes and she's just like, there's a killer. Like, you know, you got to make sure all these like doors are locked and like all this kind of stuff. And so the killer enters the store because pretty much what happens is that uh, there are two entrances. One that is the main entrance that uh, Helen came in through. And then there's another entrance on another street. And so what ends up happening is that the killer had come in through the other entrance and uh, they pretty much kill Elsa. Elsa, um, and then just like carry the body away. Anyway, so then Helen is like throughout the whole department store, and she's just it's like this cat and mouse thing. It's very much that, uh, which I think is very effective in this film, actually. So Helen is chased upstairs. She's like has this, it's not a, it's like a bigger freight elevator, but it's not a it's like a, a old timey freight elevator. It's more like a a bigger dumbwaiter, if you will. Um, cause she has to like pull the rope to like make it go up or whatever. Anyway, but she's, uh, chased upstairs to the, of the department store and she escapes through a window and she falls into an alleyway girl. And she's doing this like in her little heels and everything. And she's doing her dress. Oh, looking like an icon. She looks so good. But anyway, so, so, so like you see that like she is just running away and you know, she, you, you think that she might be okay. You think that like, oh, maybe perhaps, you know, so she's running like in these alleys and like, she's running, running, running. And we're just like, oh, you can do it, girl. I know you can do it. And so she runs towards the street. And she even, like, gets to the point where, like, you know, the parade's going on, um, right? And so, like, you know, there's this marching band and all this. And, and it's like, you know, you could have, you could have, like, went right in there. But, nope, the killer stops her. And he kills her. And so, of course, because there's this huge parade going on, nobody hears it. And so our girl Helen dies and it is the worst thing in the world because I'm going to say, right. I, I know it's like, however long into this podcast now, but I will say here and now that Julie James, uh, and I'm not any sort of, I'm not rewriting the book on any or anything, but like Julie James is not exactly the, the best final girl, uh, really when it comes to final girls. And I goddamn wish that it was Helen Shivers. Oh my God. It would have been great. But that's no slight to Jennifer Love Hewitt. She's not a horrible person or anything. I just would have loved if Helen was the final girl. And I know every other gay guy says that too, but I don't give a shit. It's because it's true. <laughs> anyway, whatever. So, uh, we're going to move past this now. We'll go back to Julie now. Anyway, so Julie, she finds an article who mentions, uh, Susie's father, Ben, um, Ben Willis. And she realizes that actually what had happened was that Ben was actually the man that they ran over moments after he had killed David to avenge his daughter. So she realizes that, that like, oh, hey, this guy actually is the one we ran over. And so we were to assume that, yeah, he did go and kill. Because then that kind of comes back from the beginning. So, like, yeah, David Egan is the guy who we saw in the beginning. Um, So he was just there. And he probably literally just, I guess, was just got into a fight with, with Ben Willis. And I'm assuming either was, I don't know what they did to I don't know what he did to him, actually. 
he either just like threw him off the cliff or he like killed him and then just dumped his body i guess i don't fucking know but anyway so she goes to the docks though to tell ray about this because ray is living on his boat very pacey witter of him that's right y'all i'm still in the middle of watching dawson's creek okay listen send help but anyways yeah anyway but what she notices is that ray's boat is called billy blue and she flees from him because she's realizing oh you went to miss to like go pay your respects or whatever but like i can't even trust you like oh no i'm not fucking doing this what the hell are you talking about so she's like running away from him because she's thinking now like oh it must be ray because she he made up this billy blue character he must be like a fucking psychopath like you know whatever like something's going on so a fisherman appears and he knocks Ray out unconscious. Um, you know, cause again, like Julia's like fighting, you know, she's yelling for her, her safety on the boat though, that she is invited on by this gentleman who we end up finding out, um, played by Muse Watson. Um, he's this fisherman, he's this fisherman. Um, but on the boat, she discovers that there are these photos and these articles about her and her friends. Um, and also pictures of Susie Willis and so the boat then leaves the docks and this fisherman is revealed to be the one and only Ben Willis, who we found out is the killer of this whole story. So pretty much we have this whole chase scene with Julie. Um, so he chases her below deck where she uncovers the bodies of like Helen and Barry in the boat's icebox. Uh, this is literally Jennifer Love Hewitt just running around um, with a wet shirt uh, being cold. And it feels a little weird just because she's supposed to kind of be a teenager still, but I guess she's legal. I don't know. It's weird. Uh, anyway, so... We see that Ray uh, regains consciousness and he goes and he steals a motorboat to go rescue Julie. And so it is this kind of, I think this movie does a really good job of like having this kind of cat and mouse dynamic happening because you have it with Helen and the uh, killer in the department store. You have it even with um, Barry and the killer and in, in near um, the like half, you know, 30 minute mark or however long it was into that and in this too i think like it also had that where like you have this really nice like thing of you know obviously like ben willis is like going after julie but like it, it is this really interesting like kind of cat and mouse thing I, I think this movie does a really good job of that but anyway so pretty much like you know uh julie's like screaming her head off and like ray aboards the boat uh he then he does get i think what happens is that he does get thrown off the boat again though and then he comes back on the boat but ultimately ray uses the rigging of the boat to actually sever ben's hand and actually sends him overboard because uh, again you have a lot of this stuff of like you know she's he, she's really just being chased after julie's just being chased after by by ben um so yeah i mean but at the end of it they end up using the boat to be able to uh throw ben aboard overboard and then ultimately killing him i guess um and severing his hand which also ties back to the whole hook thing anyway so then they're able to uh i guess somebody had to go drive that boat back to the dock though because it's just in the middle of nowhere and also what happened to that little motorboat i also kind of went about that too but anyway okay whatever so when they're back on land and they realize what, you know, uh, they've called the police and they have decided to, you know, um, 
<laughs> the police are like wondering what's have gone on and like oh this guy like you know must have just gone on after you guys so julie and ray when they're questioned by the police they deny knowing uh why ben even attempted to kill them but are relieved to not have actually killed anybody and they actually reconcile uh which is interesting because obviously the ending of the book as i uh, mentioned earlier uh they decide at the end of this to you know turn themselves in and say like here's what happened last summer but obviously in this movie they decided not to do that but it's nice that they end up you know reconciling and and they're together again lovely anyway so uh, we go a year later in 1998 uh, and julie is back in college in boston and as she enters the shower um which i don't know about you i went to a private college and i had like a suite where i shared a bathroom with uh three other gentlemen it was weird but anyway and i have been to when i was in high school i went to the university of maryland college park for something and i stayed in the dorms there and i remember those dorm bathroom and showers and bitch they were nothing so i don't know what kind of college she's going to where she has these nice ass showers and shit i was like what anyway she notices the um she notices she gets a note and she's thinking like oh no the note oh no but what ends up happening is that the the note is actually just like a flyer for a party or something um but she notices the as she enters the shower though she notices the words i still know written in the steam of the shower door and then uh, moments later a dark figure crashes through it as julie screams and then that's the end of our movie so then that is the end of i know what you did last summer that this movie uh i know what you did last summer i i really feel like it is such a nice little uh, little teen horror classic, you know? I mean, it obviously rode the wave uh, uh, that Scream kind of started, you know, and, and all that. Um, and, of course, like, you know how you have this, Urban Legend, d- different movies like that as well, you know, that are <laughs> kind of a similar vein, if you will. But uh, I think this one is definitely one where people compare it to Scream and they're like, you know, oh, hey, like, this is also good on its surface as well. You know, and and I mean, honestly, too, I mean, like, you know, you have like Freddie Prince Jr. and Michelle, uh, Sarah Michelle Geller getting together uh, years later, and they don't even say anything in this fucking movie to each other, really, uh, which is interesting. You have that. And, you know, it's just like, you know, this was definitely a, a chance for these people to have like a, a big break if you will uh a lot of these folks again like you know sarah michelle geller had just started on buffy like a year before or something like you know that was starting and and jennifer love hewitt you know this kind of like catapulted her too uh freddie prince jr you know all these people and and i really feel like you know that this was something where it was a, a big break for for these actors you know and it did well enough to spawn a franchise make an amazon tv series about it you know and all this and and i honestly think like i i haven't watched the tv series i heard it's not that good you know i i personally would not want to see like a reboot of this or anything i don't think it needs it um i think this can squarely live right in 1997 and i'd be fine with that um so you know overall and i think it's also a a fun little movie to watch on like fourth of july i love how in the i didn't mention it during my plot summary but i like how um 
in the scene where it's uh fourth of july and the, uh you know they say something uh julie says something about like you know this is his day as if like you know the fucking villain is just like killing people on fourth of july which he does but yeah this is like a nice little which is why i'm releasing this around that time anyway uh but yeah but uh, to, to stream this or watch it, you know, so uh, by the time you're hearing this, it will have just left Netflix, but it was on Netflix for for a minute. Uh, that's where I watched it at. Uh, you can also find this on HBO sometimes as well. I know it actually had all three of the movies on there at one point. Um, I did not watch the second one and the third one when they were on there, but, you know, uh, and yeah, so there's that. And also, I think it might have already released, but there was a Blu-ray release of this as well, um, like a, a like an updated one, which was kind of cool. Um, so I I kind of love that for them, you know, that's pretty cool. But yes, yeah, so that's how you can go about watching the movie, you know. Um, and maybe if you've never seen it, like I would try to find it streaming somewhere first. I don't know if I would spend money on it necessarily, but like I would at least want you to go and like uh if you haven't already seen it obviously like go go seek it out because uh it's a fun little thing to to watch with all the other little teen horror movies but but yeah give it a watch for sure as always, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do so at cultcinemacircle at gmail.com. If you'd like to give any movie recommendations, give feedback on the show, or if you'd just like to say hey, I'm open to all of it. You can also follow the show on Instagram at cultcinemacircle and on Twitter at cultcinemacircle. I tend to announce the movies that I'm going to be covering and just interact with people on there if they want. You can also follow me on Letterboxd at jesse, J-E-S-S-E, kremp, K-R-E-M-P, all one word. On that platform, I tend to log the movies that I watch, I write little stupid reviews about them, and just general foolishness over there. Be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast on your podcatcher of choice, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm pretty much on all of them. Be sure to leave five stars and a one to two sentence review about the show uh, so we can grow the audience and then just spread the love all around. Be sure to tune in next week to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast, where I'll be covering 1997's Starship Troopers. Set in the future, the story follows a young soldier named Johnny Rico and his exploits in the mobile infantry. Rico's military career progresses from recruit to non-commissioned officer to finally officer against the backdrop of an interstellar war between mankind and an arachnoid and an arachnoid species known as the Bugs. As always, thank you for taking the time to listen to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast. And remember, we should have a plan. Angela Lansbury always had a plan. Take care. Bye.